Hello, and welcome to the Partnerships for Progress podcast, conversations to fuel innovation in higher education. In today's episode, I sit down with Louis Soares, Chief Learning and Innovation Officer at the American Council on Education, to talk about how institutional leaders can pursue innovative, transformative, and sustainable business models in serving today's learners. Listen in as we discuss the need to reimagine the delivery of education in order to respond to the challenges facing higher education. The space in which higher education providers are operating has become increasingly complex and academic leaders are having to reimagine how they run their institutions and deliver education. Not an easy feat. Louis Soares, Chief Learning and Innovation Officer at the American Council on Education, has more than 20 years of experience in post-secondary education policy and practice and has shared great insights with publications on this topic, most recently through a three-part blog series focused on the concept of a post-secondary learning ecosystem. Louis, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I first want to cover the topic of these unprecedented challenges and what you've coined the post-traditional learner. You reference in your work the challenges that colleges and universities have begun to encounter. Can you describe how you see these challenges and the environment in which institutions are currently navigating? First, let me start at the, the highest level. Higher ed is in such demand, as we all know, because Uh, A knowledge-driven and global economy is simply ratcheting up both the level of knowledge and skills and abilities that people need to a post-secondary level or what we consider post-secondary levels, two, four-year degrees and beyond. And also, it's continually changing the mix of knowledge, skills, and abilities that people need. There are so many different ways that we frame that, but it has to do with disciplinary knowledge, like in chemistry, but also the what people call these human skills or soft skills, the ability to work in teams, increasingly the ability to work with AI and, and other tools. And that mix of delivering those knowledge, skills, and abilities to a very diverse population, both within the U.S. and globally, is simply challenging, right? We, we need to acknowledge that. It's very intense in this moment in the U.S.'s history. But it's been intense at other times as well. In the Industrial Revolution, in the earliest parts of the Information Technology Revolution, in the 80s, there are these moments when this challenge of how a population of people that need to be educated to a higher level or trained to a higher level, how you deliver that, it puts a stress on what I call the infrastructure that a society has to deliver that learning. The most robust infrastructure we have in the U.S., is our traditional two and four year institutions. We've had others in the past, and this is where the, I want to just point this out because of the ecosystem idea. Through the mid part of the 20th century, it dwindled off. There was also a robust kind of in the job training context. So you would go to work for a large company for a long period of time, you'd get on the job training there, maybe some extra skills training there. That has diminished more, it's become less structured as people's working lives have changed. And so on the one hand, you have the stress on the formal ecosystem of two and four year schools to deliver very complex bodies of knowledge. On the other hand, you have this more kind of like active labor market um, training and education being much more disjointed than it was in the 70s and 80s to put an archetype on that. It's like you worked at a GM factory for 30 years and 
with more or less levels of efficiency, you received on-the-job training. Just by doing the work, you learn things, and then you were trained formally in new assembly line technologies. That's kind of frayed at that level of organization. So that brings us to the creation of this new type of learner. This learner that wasn't graduating from high school and immediately be prepared to go to a two and four year school that could deliver what they had been delivering for the last 50 years on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's folks that aren't being as served as well by that labor market kind of focused education and training model because it's less stable than it was. And you see this emergence of different ways to deliver post-secondary education to this different kind of learner who's not going to go to a college academically prepared, live there for four years, and then get what had been delivered to 10 years before and 10 years before that. And I'm not being critical in that sense, just trying to frame the challenge. So the knowledge mix we need to deliver is moving fast and more diverse. The learners that we need to serve are also growing along all those dimensions. And this is causing both pressure on existing colleges and then this broadening of an ecosystem. The pressures on traditional college are ranging from people questioning the value of higher education, student debt increasing, in part because we've been not investing as well as much as we should on the public sector side, especially at the state level. So there are both financial pressures on colleges, questions of value, issues around debt facing them, and also just the general challenge of how you deliver like a, a body of knowledge that's useful enough so that folks can be successful in their lives and in their work. I would be remiss if I didn't say that for the traditional higher ed sector, there's a broader set of socio-cultural pressures as well around that are in many ways as or more important around equity and inclusion and social cohesion in society. And Those pressures are meaningful because in addition to being providers of post-secondary education, two- and four-year institutions are also social institutions in the American society. And those other pressures are even more pressure in addition to the economic financial pressures on them. So I hope that begins to answer your question. Yes, it certainly does describe all the different angles around which schools are navigating a variety of different pressures. Over a decade ago, you encouraged leaders to consider what you called the post-traditional learner. How has your view, as you've just mentioned it, on this post-traditional learner been either reinforced over these last 10 years or evolved and changed? I think the most significant thing that I would notice with regard to post-traditional learners, and and I should reflect a little bit on where the term came from. I say it in the brief from those years ago. The goal wasn't to create a term that people could use, right? It was really my lived experience as a policy analyst and also early in my career interviewing folks who had lost their jobs as part of the workforce training system in Rhode Island, where I'm from. It was this idea that the idea of a traditional student was based on two and four institutions having a sense of themselves and then describing a potential learner that was different from their conception of how they should do what they do as non-traditional. And then in the policy world, around that basic shared assumption, there was all these other terms created for people at risk, oh, part-time, employees who study, These were all terms that you would see in the policy literature in the late 90s described. And it's not that they're unuseful. They are. 
They help us identify challenges. But the other quality that it had was it was othering. It made that person other in the culture of the learning institution they were going to. So that's where post-traditional came from. And the idea was that we were beginning to see uh, such a growth in the number of folks because of the reskilling that we mentioned earlier that needed to engage in some type of post-secondary education that we were driving towards a post-secondary experience. And also, by the way, even among traditional learners, like 18-year-olds that were going to be largely, they would look traditional in many ways. They would be financially dependent on their parents' residential. You saw two drivers making them be less traditional. One was the digital native aspect of their identity, which meant that they were far more conversant with digital content and, and learning in digital environments. So learning wasn't just captured within the college classroom. And the other part was we were beginning to learn that whether you were traditional or non-traditional, post-traditional learner, there was a blending of classroom-based learning and experiential learning was important for transfer of knowledge. So it wasn't just that you had these older reskilling demand growing. Even among traditional age students, the digital revolution and this cognitive revolution in learning that more experiential learning should be incorporated into a traditional post-secondary ed started opening up the aperture for a post-traditional. And so that's where that term came from. And by the way, one of the things to remember is that the post-traditional learner is, it's like that quote from the science fiction writer. Oh gosh, I remember his name. The future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. But post-traditional learners are not equally distributed across the post-secondary ed ecosystem. There are some colleges that still have highly traditional students. And we need to remember that as we have this conversation, because if we make it sound like all 17 million undergraduates are post-traditional in, in the way we're describing now, it's not the experience of a chunk of colleges and universities. And so it's like you're excluding them. However, I will say one of the most promising signs that I have seen since that paper came out was that colleges are becoming much more nuanced about what their mission is and who they can serve really well. And so in business terms, you'd call that market segmentation. They're starting to become much more, okay, I can serve 18 to 24-year-olds really well. I can even serve 18 to 24-year-olds who are looking for co-op experiences really well. Or I can serve those students really well, but I can also serve single moms that want to get nursing degrees really well. Colleges are becoming much more intentional about what their value proposition is and what becomes then the two or three student groups that you can serve really well. The higher education ecosystem and the needs of post-traditional learners continue to change rapidly. Keep listening as we talk about innovative responses and paths to institutional transformation, which can be supported in collaboration with alternative providers. Well, it certainly sounds as though institutions have a lot to sort through in thinking about how they're serving learners across the spectrum, uh, certainly not a one-size-fits-all. And so in order for institutional leaders to, to respond to these changing learner profiles, the economic 
pressures. How do you advise a college or university leader to find a path to respond to these changes, a path to transformation? First, you have to deeply understand mission and the way shared governance works at your your campus. It's a misnomer to think of higher ed as just a kind of business like FedEx or something like that. Every industry has its way that it operates and higher ed has a way. It's a very distributed leadership management structure. And you have to engage that management structure while you're thinking about change. And so the a cycle of dialogue I, I, I take some of our members through in some of our programs is how do you really deeply understand your mission and how does you grow out of that one or two value propositions to clarify who you can serve well and what problems you solve for them? The easiest example, this is a, a, an example where post-traditional students really are a good test of this, right? Do you serve 32-year-old single moms who are working as a medical assistant who they have to work, they have daycare issues. A value proposition is I can help that person get a degree to become an LPN. Those archetypes help. So it's clarifying that value proposition, but it has to be tied to mission. This is one of the things actually that I learned in doing this work with our members. It's like the value proposition has to be deeply steeped in the mission. And in the process of doing that, you build a, a cohort of leaders, a leadership team, not in terms of hierarchy, but a cross-governance leadership team that helps uh, describe that value, those value propositions. And then you do an analysis of what are our systems in place that we might need to change? How well do they execute against that value proposition? And you look at academic programs, you look at staff support, you look at facilities, you look at technology. And I often advocate for, as you identify early opportunities from where you think you have assets in place that you could leverage right now is begin there and bu build out serving people using those assets and constantly be learning from what you're doing to both hone the value proposition and continue to iterate your programming. The other thing is that as you go through that analysis, it's always doing a gut check with the financial model of the institution because too often I call them academic and programmatic innovations on campuses. They're funded by, whether it's internal or through philanthropy, an initial slug of capital. And it's not linked to the ongoing financial model of the institution. And that makes it very difficult to sustain. Well, and there's no question, as we talked about the digitally connected world we're all operating in now, that there are a variety of providers, alternative providers, uh, educational technology, and otherwise that are starting to help navigate the complexities and some of these gaps that are potentially being identified across institutions when they're doing this analysis. So how do you see those types of alternative providers fitting into this analysis? I think I want to start with talking about them in light of colleges and universities and then go to a place of them as standalone activities. As ACE is exploring this issue, what we've started to see is a continuum. On the one end of the continuum is alternative providers in this broadening ecosystem viewing themselves as competing with higher ed. And the idea being that whether they're trying to offer a four-year degree or not, they're offering some type of learning experience that they argue leads to a good job and a prosperous life. And on the other end of the continuum are alternative providers that are collaborating with colleges and universities, if I may say, Acadium, right? And that really are there 
as you begin to, and I'll go deeper here, to focus on your value proposition, align it to your mission, align your resources and your programs and services around that, you quickly come to discover places where, let's say I have five key things I need to do to really execute on my mission. I can do three of them better than anyone. The, the other two, I might need a partner that can do that for me or with me. And I think that's the way the collaboration is emerging in the in a broader ecosystem is colleges are beginning to get much more in-depth about how they understand their core capabilities and what they're really good at, and consequently are becoming smarter about who they partner with. There are still bumps in the road. One of these the segments of the ecosystem that you're seeing some of those bumps in the road now is around OPMs and how colleges and universities are, on the one hand, their collaboration, but colleges and universities are revisiting the nature of the collaboration with those particular and they're trying to say, what did we want out of this? What are we good at? And who's the partner we need? And looking for those kinds of partners in that little area of the broadened post-secondary ecosystem. On the other side, as you move across to that other end of the continuum of standalones, I think that these would be folks like boot camps and even shorter term certificates by employers and things like that. I think what we're seeing there is this explosiveness and boot camps are slightly more mature. And you, if we can believe that, say that now, because they've been around for a little bit longer than even some of the certificate programs by employers grow with Google being one example. I think what we're seeing there is a lot of content and engagement and trying to figure out if what's the right mix of delivery that then yields the skills and abilities that then yield the job. I think that part of the market is still finding its foundation of solidness, if that makes sense. It's like where there's a lot of experimentation. I'm sure some of it will end up being good. Some of it will fall away. But that direct link, it seems that the competitive stake in the ground is I can give someone, it may not be a four-year degree, but I can give someone a meaningful set of knowledge and skills that's going to get them a good job. And I think the ability of the innovators in that space to deliver against that promise is still being tested. Paths to institutional change can be propelled through partnerships. Keep listening as we share paths towards sustainability that allow for manageable transformation to meet the needs of today's learners. So as a, an industry leader and the chief innovation officer at ACE, as we're talking about these kind of paths forward for manageable transformation and ultimately really institutional sustainability, are there any examples that you've seen, effective examples at, at institutions or uh, through types of collaboration you're describing that you would call out? There's a terrific collaboration between the University of Texas system and Grow with Google around how they integrate those Google certs into credentialing programs. I think there's a lot to learn both about credentialing programs, but also about the certs themselves in that space. I think the Acadia model of how you're actually helping to manage capacity of access to courses such that students can move through their degree programs more quickly. I think that's a good example. I think at the institutional level, you're seeing some really interesting partnerships at Miami-Dade College with some of the newer providers, but also just partnerships with industry leaders around training programs and apprenticeships. I think this is important. IBM has a really interesting new apprenticeship program 
So does T-Mobile in collaboration with colleges. ACE is involved in some ways in reviewing some of the more work-based training for college credit, not so much the college coursework that goes with those apprenticeships. So those are some of the examples. You're also seeing some interesting work around student services. Uh, Southern New Hampshire University has an interesting partnership called Duet, which does really advising and student support services for lower income folks accessing the Southern New Hampshire online experience. I think that's interesting as well. So you're seeing a variety of different innovations. Most of those our collaborations. Uh, and another aspect that I would say too, and, and I do think right now the market is shifting there. Let me make give one more example. A lot of folks that had posited themselves as perhaps being an alternative to higher ed, many of them have come to ACE and asked to, for us to review their courses, their content to see if it's worthy of college credit. And I think there's a both and strategy there is one, if someone can use my content and go get a job and feel like they got what they needed, that's fine. But I also want to build that other pathway, thinking that it it diversifies revenue, number one, for them. But also, it's simply, it's moving in that collaboration model. And I do think if you actually looked at the VC funding in this, in the alternative provider space, it's definitely moving in the direction of the collaboration end of the continuum. It seems to be where the robustness is right now. And I don't say that as that's a desired state. Traditional four-year institution, two- and four-year institutions in the U.S. is a system that evolved over hundreds of years. And alongside that has always been a variety. We used to call them correspondence courses. People forget that um, before we had land-grant universities, we had the Grange and 4-H. Those organizations were doing training and education in agricultural technology. And we have a variety of different ways that happens now as well. And before we had community colleges, we had mechanics in schools. There's always been this kind of, as higher ed became a more mature industry and stable set of institutions in American society, there's always been activity around it. I think that the technology has created an ability for that ecosystem to grow faster. But I say that because we often talk like this is all new. There's always been a lot of action around traditional two and four year institutions doing education and training work. We're at a level of intensity, as we talked about earlier, driven by technological change and also just the diversity of learners trying to get different types of purposes met. And I can't help but wonder about the affordability factor in all of this as well. And curious if you have any kind of comments on how learners are navigating the costs of these options. Let's start with the cost first and then how learners navigate it. I think from traditional institutions, our challenge really is, as I've worked with ACE members, our challenge is what many enterprises face. If we have this built infrastructure of facilities, resources, staffing, and faculty to deliver something, and there's a a high fixed cost there and sometimes high variable costs. And it's how do we come to understand what the demand for what we're offering looks like and over time, come up with a cost structure that makes sense. In the middle of all that 
is the political and public dialogue about how expensive college is. But as a matter of almost like business management and business leadership, it's coming to understand the mix of resources that make sense now that reflects a cost structure. And I think that's going to get resolved differently for different colleges and universities. It is going on at the same time, but it's different because another very real variable there, especially for public institutions, is state funding, which has been going down. And the macroeconomic argument for the public funding of higher ed is solid and strong and just getting solider and stronger. So you can't separate those two. You can't just have a conversation about colleges creating a new business model. You also have to have one about public funding. So that's on our end. On the end of, on the cost side for alternative providers, there's a range there too. The more sophisticated they are, the more expensive they are, they tend to be. Because many of these organizations, though not all are digital native, they've tend to have incorporated technology platforms that yield scale benefits. So you end up with a a lower cost structure. I still think from the perspective of potential learners, it has to do with the relative cost to the relative gain. So it's like you might be inexpensive, you might be an inexpensive subscription-based model for learning, but if the benefit of when you get out, if you can't get a better job and all that, then even though it was less money, in a way, there's a risk management component to it. Well, it's like, if I could do that for $300 and see if I learned something that could get me a better job, that's better than taking out a $15,000 loan and finding out the same thing. So those are complex market issues though. And I'll be very interested to see two things. As the new gainful employment regs like move through this system, how that impacts innovation. But also it looks like it's hard to think of Congress achieving much given all of the division. But if short-term Pell goes through, it'll be an interesting mix of gainful and short-term Pell and how that impacts the incentives in the market to see what cost and price looks like in that lower cost provider side versus quality and outcomes. Yeah, you've certainly helped us think through a, a lot of content here. And I guess I'd pose a last question to see if you have any, you know, last thoughts or final piece of advice that you'd offer our listeners thinking about partnerships that can enhance the value proposition that you described earlier, meet those high quality standards and really serve the modern day learner. My biggest observation now is there is more than enough work to do in educating. Take your pick about how you count. Lately, I've been thinking about anyone that doesn't have a bachelor's degree. And even that's exclusionary because even folks that have bachelor's degrees need more skills and knowledge and all that. And they are get, they seem to be getting that though. That's the division. It's like, if you already have a bachelor's degree, you're much more able to either get the knowledge you need from the work that you do or you're able to get that next certificate and you can afford to do it. So, But when you get in that associate's degree and below space, which is like 100 million people, and it's the, the further you get away from a meaningful credential of some kind, like associate's degree, like it's harder and harder to connect those people to learning that's sustained and connected. That's going to take two and four-year institutions. It's going to take quality alternative providers, there's more than enough work to serve that 100 million people, to get them on learning journeys that will last a lifetime, right? It's like, if you just have a high school diploma right now to take that segment of the population, if you're not able to, and most are not, to stop, go to a college, get a four-year degree. Some of those folks are being served right now through our large online colleges, Western Governor, Southern New Hampshire, 
but we still have plenty of work to do. And those folks are going to have to keep on learning. There's plenty of work for everybody that genuinely wants to serve students, is willing to share their data and outcomes, and is willing to partner and collaborate. Understand what their value proposition is and how it fits with the ecosystem. It's very rare that even among traditional colleges and universities, that you can do everything that every individual learner needs to be successful. And so there's plenty of work for all of us, as long as you're willing to be transparent about the, your mission to serve students and sharing your outcomes information. There is going to be noise in the system because of the need to experiment. And we have to be mindful of that, especially from a public policy perspective. But plenty of work, as long as you're willing to share outcomes and data and collaborate in part. Well, I am honored to be working in this space and in this ecosystem alongside you and grateful for all the contributions you're making, the leadership that you're presenting to help our institutions navigate these complex times and the support you're giving to the post-traditional learner and what they need to achieve in order to be sustainable and, and have social mobility and learn along that lifetime continuum. So grateful for all of your insights. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you for listening and a big thank you to Lewis for his insight and expertise. Acadian looks to help colleges and universities during this time of rapid change by providing collaborative solutions to help institutions and their learners continue to thrive. Make sure to subscribe to the Partnerships for Progress podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you know when the next conversation is live.